I'm Dave Cates, President and CEO of Denison Mines Corp. We're uh, traded on the TSX under the symbol DML and on the NYSE American under the symbol DNN. Uh, we're a uranium development and exploration company focused in the Athabasca Basin region of northern Saskatchewan. Our flagship project is the Wheeler River Project, and it's being advanced right now through the permitting and feasibility study stages with a vision of becoming the next new uranium producer in the Athabasca region. David, good to see you. Uh, been a while. I think it was August, um, actually. So um, you've been quite busy. Lots of uh, headlines out there. Uh, I'm, I think what I'd like to do today, if it's okay with you, can, let's let's get back and remind ourselves, you know, what's going on at your company and a little bit less about what's going on in the world because there's some pretty wild theories and thoughts about Russia, Ukraine, Kazatom, Prom, privatizations um, and, uh, you know, what, what this kind of supply-demand story is. So maybe we'll come back and visit that next time. So let's talk about you. Right, Wheeler River Project, you've got a, a couple of things going on there. Um, let's remind people what it is that you've got, and then we'll maybe dig into what you're doing in terms of moving that project forward. Yeah, Matt, look, I think that's a, a great idea to focus on on the Denison story. And, and just, you know, on the market, the, the whole thing is we haven't been reliant on the market story. And so our, our company has been focused on a project that would make money before the uranium price lifted. Uh, and so we are, I think, less sensitive and, and our investors can be a little less concerned about the volatility that we're seeing in some of the narratives around the market, because we've got one of those real low cost, high quality projects that uh, doesn't rely on, on a peak or a spike in the uranium price. Um, but no, look, it has been a really exciting uh, last uh, 12 to six months. Uh, we, we Last time we picked up, we were in the middle of a lot of things. And since then, we've had a lot of great news come out uh, reflecting the results of just months and months of work in the field uh, with, with our project at uh, Wheeler River. So, yeah, I mean, let's, let's, let's get into it. Uh, the biggest thing, and maybe I'll sort of kick off and, and you can probe and pry as, as you do, uh, was our field test at, at Phoenix. So this was a, a milestone uh, accomplishment for us, and it was the focus of, of our activity in 2021, uh, was around installing a five-spot uh, ISR test pattern at, right into phase one of the Phoenix deposit, uh, operating it first uh, with, with uh, water. So we now have large diameter wells. Uh, we're operating it with pumping capacities that are that should be comparable to a commercial setting. We've got all of our monitoring wells around collecting just mass amounts of hydrogeologic data to build the database we need to mine plan this, this ISR operation. All of that went extremely successful. So we moved to a second part of the test, which involved a tracer. And this, this is really exciting for us because another industry first uh, to do this kind of test in the Athabasca Basin, we used basically an, an inorganic salt uh, that we added to the solution that we're pumping into our test pattern. We operated the pattern in reverse. So we normally would inject on the outer wells and recover through the center. Here we used the tracer and we injected in the center so that we could see when we were actually recovering that same solution in each of our surrounding ring wells in the commercial pattern. And that was critical because we were able to establish breakthrough times we were able to establish that we didn't lose tracer out of our pattern into our monitoring wells. We didn't pick up any tracer in our surrounding monitoring wells. So we had real control over that pattern. And we were even able to do a cleanup phase because of this tracer. So we could then pump 
water without the tracer uh, through the system or keep pumping out of the system and see how quickly we drop that tracer level down. At the end of the day, four, four big takeaways. One, we got commercial scale flow rates, which were consistent with our pre-feasibility study. Okay, this is like tangible validation of key assumptions in our PFS. Flow rates were there. Second, we had hydraulic control. We didn't see that uh, tracer leave our pattern. We could control it. Third were the breakthrough times. They were actually consistent with what we had developed in all of our earlier models from all of our earlier test work. So big hydro models that we called the proof of concept model that we've announced previously, that kind of model, we proved up the breakthrough time we were expecting from that modeling. And then fourth is the cleanup, the ability to actually show that we, we not only controlled it, but could cleanse that, that area of the ore body from our tracer. All of that, just really critical stuff for our project. Okay, so that's the ISR component. Phoenix is the ISR component, and we'll talk about Griffin in a second. Right, so take 50% roughly of the world's uh, uranium-produced ISR. It, it Technically, it, you should be able to solve this, and you, you're you going through the process of working out how it works for you guys. We've talked in the past about freeze domes, freeze walls, et cetera, all leading to yeah. the end game here, which is trying to get a permit and trying to, trying to get the the first nations on board with what it is that you're doing here because technically you don't feel that you've got an issue you, i noticed the uh, recent announcement of the adoption of the indigenous peoples policy which is uh, a, a good start i mean um i don't know if you want to kind of get into that because I, th I thought you made some great references on a panel that we did with you um you know at the end of last year but you've got to you've got to get the first nations on board Talking technical is one thing. Getting them involved and understanding this as you go through a process is, is, is another. So what are, what are you doing about ensuring that you can, you're doing everything you possibly can about getting a permit to actually allow you to extract uh, U308? Look, the, the thing is, they're not actually uh, separate concepts. Um, the technical de-risking is critical to providing confidence and understanding to what we're doing, which is a really important part of the indigenous engagement side of things. So, and, and permitting and regulatory. So this test and the, you know, and the, and the outcomes from it, yes, they're critical on de-risking the fact that the ISR will work, but that's exactly the same question uh, that we get from the interested parties, right? Is, well, how do we know that the ISR will work? How do we know that you will be able to control the mining solution that you inject in? And so these results really do become critical parts of the environmental assessment. Uh, they validate the assumptions we have in the environmental assessment. And all of that is what we end up consulting with our communities with, is walking them through. This is the test we have done, right? We've done, we've done a test with something that couldn't harm the environment. But through doing that, we've shown that we can control it, we can reclaim it, you know, and that our modeling and all the testing we're done is, is real and it's validated, which can give everyone great confidence that when we do outline the possible implications for the environment and the ways we're mitigating it, we have like actual results to back it up. It's not just take us on our word that this is how the design should work. We're now able to show this is how the design does work because we've done it. 
but you're still going to get, and, and that's fine. And we, we were talking to um, a, a company this week who's looking to, you know, pick, pick up metals in the form of nodes from the seabed, deep, deep ocean seabed. They have got a two page list of people who object to this because they don't understand the science, right? The science is, the work has been done. You guys, in the space, see those sorts of objections, uh, you know, coming through from NGOs, etc., from all around the world. Like, so, with the work that you've done now, how much more work have you got to do to, to be able to say, look, we're, we're confident of what we, can, we what we can extract. We're confident of what we'll leave behind when we stop producing here, and 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 get the support of not just the province and and the government, but ensure that you're not going to be paralyzed by this constant objections of whether it be First Nations or other NGO type groups. Um, what's it going to take, do you think? Well, look, it, it, this is where, where the Indigenous Peoples Policy is, is, is really useful in terms of articulating our approach. Um, it, it definitely takes the technical side of it. Everyone is sophisticated. Everyone's interested in the technical side. But our top line on, on our uh, sort of objectives of that Indigenous Peoples Policy is around engagement. And it takes sustained, regular, ongoing, early engagement uh, to be able to have uh, interested parties feel comfortable about what you're doing, that they follow along with, with the results, that their questions are asked and answered. I mean, this, that's the core to it, really, is, is it's a respect uh, that, that we think is necessary between our business and the traditional territories and the other interested parties that have traditional territories where we're working. And, and really, it's, it's no different than if you were uh, thinking about your neighbor and how you, you respect your neighbor, right? Like if you're going to build a pool, you, you know, and disrupt the street and all of these other things, the respectful thing, definitely talk to your neighbor about what's happening, why it's happening, how it's not going to affect them, or if it is going to affect them, how you're going to deal with that. We're trying to apply the same uh, common sense level of respect, but also understanding that there's something higher than that, which is that this traditional territory uh, that we're working in, it's not our yard in that neighbor and pool scenario. It's, it's actually belongs to the indigenous groups. It's their traditional territory. So we do try to bring that level of respect through. Well, you've got to because it could. You've got to because it's the right thing to do, and you've got to. Otherwise, it paralyze your business. We've seen that happen in a lot of Canadian companies, right? So, um, has it by by working on this um, adoption of this Indigenous Peoples Policy, has that plus the work you did previously started to shape your understanding of the timing? Because when we first talked, you thought this thing was yeah. two, three years away, right? There's early days. We spoke two years ago. Your, your sense of timing then versus what it is now, have you had to reset? Definitely, we're disrupted by, by the pandemic. So that has caused a reset. It wasn't right for us to continue consultation right at the beginning or onset of the pandemic and try to do a roadshow through the Indigenous communities. I mean, that was... It was a decision we made and we formally suspended. Now we are back at it uh, and, and timelines, we do have uh, better visibility to milestones. And so the next milestone on the environmental assessment front, and there's a tremendous amount of engagement, of course, that goes into the environmental assessment is the submission of the draft environmental impact statement. And, and we are generally on track to be submitting that in the first half of this year. That then sort of moves things into another phase. So to this point, we've been doing engagement, consultation, and assessments, scientific assessments, 
technical work, identifying what are the possible impacts of our project. All of that gets built into the EIS. At the same time, we're going to pull all that information and the feedback into our feasibility study because we want our project design to actually reflect the outcomes of consultation. But once that draft EIS is submitted, it's sort of the ball is now in the other court of, of this you know, regulatory tennis uh, match, if we want to call it that. The regulators then are tasked with their responsibility of taking that material, analyzing, considering from a regulatory standpoint, carrying out their own consultation with the impacted or interested parties. And then that, of course, sets a ping pong or tennis match of uh, questions and responses, questions and responses. Now that timeline, we're, you know, we can tell you we're on track for submission middle of this year. The timeline of the back and forth, of course, it will depend on how many, uh, you know, hits there are back and forth over the net. We would guide that this is something that could be a two-year type process before we could get to a final approved EIS. So that that we do have more clarity on than if we go back a few years in terms of how long it will take. But it is still, you know, and it's I don't want to suggest, you know, the project's being built tomorrow. It's still subject to risk. Every project that goes through permitting was subject to timing risk. It is, but you're $1.2 billion company, so I think people are assuming th- things will uh, ca- carry on as, as you've laid out, right? So, um, and, 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 and you know, to that point, do you feel that, so we will get on to Griffin, I promise. Do, do you feel that, um, you know, p- perhaps the market has got a little bit ahead, ahead of itself. Perhaps there's a little bit of backfilling to do because the, the process that you're outlining here, the, the comments that come into us are, my goodness, it's all just a bit boring. It's all, a, it's all a bit kind of worthy stuff. And, you know, why can't they just kind of get, you know, get on with the business, doing the business? You, you're saying it's critical. It's mission critical, business critical to do this this way. And this is how long it will take. You, you've, you've had that realization early on, right? Look, I mean, it is, it is, um, look, regulatory work is boring. Uh, the, the investors are, are, are generally right about that. And, um, regulatory work is also not the greatest in terms of a risk reward for the investor because generally there's a value that's built into a company. And there's a presumption that the regulatory work will proceed as planned. You know, you're right. We're a $1.2 billion company. There's there's no shortage of us putting resources to this. We will not be short on resources. But I think our case is different um, for for a very important reason. I think in the mining curve life cycle, everyone's seen the Lassonde curve and and that trough. Like that permitting trough is is boring uh, for most companies. Where we're different is we've never really necessarily received the value because of our mining method selection. And we haven't been as boring a story and we won't be because we continue to de-risk the mining method selection. So I'll give you an example of this year. Yes, submitting the draft EIS, significant milestone, Uh, arguably not the most exciting milestone. I mean, it starts the clock on the regulatory uh, ping pong. So good that it happens, has to happen. If we don't do it, we don't start the clock. But what's more important for our story this year is the fact that we're planning uh, a f- feasibility field test that is taking that test I talked about earlier uh, with the commercial scale pattern and to the next level in support of both the environmental assessment and the feasibility study. Now that test, what we're intending to do here is take part of the pattern and actually use a mining solution, an acidic solution to you know a controlled injection of it to combine all the work we've done in the lab 
from our metallurgy with all the work we've done in the field and recover an actual small quantity of uranium bearing solution by mining part of or test mining part of that pattern. Now, that for us would be uh, quite, you know, the ultimate milestone in, in our journey on bringing ISR mining to the Athabasca Basin. It's critical for the feasibility study because it'll give us that validation we need, but it'll also give us really important outcomes for the environmental assessment and confirming our assumptions. So when I look at the regulatory timeline that most companies have, I don't think we've got that sort of static story. Like this is a, a de-risking event that I could see the analyst community, like they've done all along the way over the last two, three years, saying, well, look, this test is actually tangible and I'm going to change my price to nav target or I'm going to change my discount rate assumption because the risk around this project is going down every time these guys are successful. And, and that, I think, is really different. When you have a conventional operation, conventional plan, you know, everyone presumes it's going to work and your regulatory window is just a risky time to own the stock. I think we've given, given our investors something that more than offsets that because of the tremendous success that we're having de-risking the mining method. You are moving it forward, and, and that's good, as you should. You, you, need, you need to do that on the, on the ISR project for all the technical reasons we've talked about ad, ad nauseum previously. Um, let, I'm just kind of conscious of time here. You, you, you give me a stop, hard stop date so, at time, so I need to work to that, um, which, which is obviously uh, Griffin, more, more conventional and in conjunction with you know, you know, 22.5% owning, uh, ownership of uh, McLean Lake Uranium Mill. It, people, it's something that people can understand a little bit better and perhaps Put a put a value on, but and 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 and, and maybe there's not too much more to say uh, about it about it than that. But what what I'm what I'm trying to um, get from you is, given what you said around permitting and the EIS process and um, how you, you believe you're slightly unconventional compared to some of the other North American uh, uranium stories in that sense, is where you see yourself. Globally, because if I, if I look at social media, the, 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 the mania that's going on at the moment in terms of the wild claims and pointing and accusations and so forth, you know, it's, it's very different from, say, the nickel space where, you know, most people in the space, we need all of the above. We're all in the same boat. We, I hope we all make it because, you know, that, that, that's yep. what the demand story says. Uranium is, it's much more combative and more com competitive. Right. But the difference being you've got low grade stuff going on, low grade um, projects in, in Africa, decent sized scale and a, yeah. a history there. Yeah. And you've got the whole North American story going where it's, it's super high grades, super low cost, super high margin. It's fantastic. But there's a expectation that it's going to take a little bit longer to kind of get into production. Right. So you need to work at how you pitch yourself, Denison. You only care about you. You don't care about the other people in North America how you fit into that ecosystem and how investors should look at you as part of their investment portfolio. That, that, that's what you're selling here. So what, what are the yeah. things that you direct people to? Well, look, I mean, that's a great question. And, and it is a unique part of our industry, the, the way there are so many different narratives that suit the different types of projects. It's, and, and of course, everyone wishes uh, in a way that we could have a, a less competitive, a more friendly industry, but, um, but it, it really is driven by the different strategies and, and the necessary necessity of those strategies for the different companies. In, in our case, like touching on Griffin is excellent because as Phoenix moves forward, 
and and the greater the confidence grows on Phoenix and the further we progress it, we we are turning our minds to what Phoenix does for our company. It's not just about one project and generating the MPV from Phoenix. Uh, Phoenix and our company is unique in that Phoenix will has that potential to open the door to other low-cost development assets. Phoenix doesn't need the price to be higher because of its potential to compete with the Kazakh production all in costs. But, you know, Griffin is right there with MacArthur River Cigar Lake when it comes to all in cost per pound based on our estimates. And our THT deposit at Waterbury Lake, not much higher. We're talking uh, two projects there between Griffin and THT that have all in costs under $25 US per pound. Now that is better than most slash almost all other development projects uh, in the world. And Phoenix is really the catalyst to funding us internally, generating that cash flow, where we can then take our teams that have gone and licensed and permitted and designed Phoenix and pivot them right to the next project at Griffin at THT. The other thing is, I think 2022, like if I were to to to, to sort of guide, you know, nugget for for the investors out there, I think 2022 is an interesting year where you see more focus from us on on other assets, like at McLean and Midwest. You know, we had a tremendous uh, success with our partners um, at McLean in Arano, testing the Sabre mining method. Probably a whole nother call or, 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 or chat for us, Matt, to talk about Sabre. But, but you know, that's an area where we, we are planning with Arano to go back at assessing what does Sabre do for the unmined, unmined McLean deposits right near the mill? What does Sabre do for Midwest? And I know that we'd love to study what does ISR do for Midwest? These are projects that, you know, between the will of Arano and Denison, I, I think we're going to see more attention come to these projects. And they might actually be quite competitive when we bring these mining methods to the table instead of, you know, conventional underground or open pit approaches that just don't fit that well for these deposits. And then, you know, our story at the end of it becomes Phoenix, Griffin, Waterbury, THT, Midwest, McLean. It's a portfolio of potentially producing assets in the bottom section, about quartile, whatever it is of that cost curve. That's where we're really going. Better together or better apart? Because you, you, you've got a lot of cash. You obviously you um, cashed in on the on the on the uh, GBX stuff. You've been collecting debt, I see, and you, you obviously um, you know got paid back the um, loan to UEX, right? So you got a, you got a bunch of cash um, and, and equities available to you. A big portfolio, lots of exploration potential. Right. Uh, and these kind of obviously bankers, which I think have been, you know, val- valued into the way people are yep. valuing the company today. So better, better together or better apart for your shareholders? What's the plan? Yeah. So, so our view is better together. Doesn't mean that there aren't parts that would be better apart. Uh, it, you know, I'll tell you, like when we, when we came out with the ISR mining, um, before we put out the announcement, we looked, through the entire universe of projects to find any other projects in the Athabasca Basin that we could acquire, you know, on the cheap before the news came out on, on what ISR might do for Phoenix. And uh, they just weren't there. So from a developer, you know, want to be a producer, want to be an intermediate producer uh, standpoint, having assets that can be developed in your portfolio, they're valuable, you know, and, and whether we get the value for it today, is, is another question, but being able to have them there so when we do generate that cash flow, we do have multiple producing assets, 
that's how we're going to generate those larger scale returns for our investors. When we're just stuck on, on a value of one project, you just don't have that growth or additive potential to your narrative. People can't say, hey, look, these guys have got something that's very successful with ISR and the value goes way beyond Phoenix. That's what we're trying to achieve. We don't want it to just be, well, if they're successful with the ISR, well, then Phoenix produces and here's the value for Phoenix, good for them. It really is about having assets that you can deploy those returns to. Uh, when you get this further along, it, it's it's not just about mining it out. It's about what you will do with those returns. And, and for that reason, most of those assets, they're better within uh, and as part of one. So t- tell me about this. Again, I'm just conscious of, of, of your, your time frame here. And, and, and you're right. I'd love to come um, maybe get a little bit technical, ge- geologically so, uh, with you or, or your VP of exploration, trying to understand what, what you're seeing there and, you know, how you're allocating capital and the job, but et cetera, to, to, to that. But if, if, I, if we look at the, can we just look at some numbers, please? Okay. Um, in terms of the, the, the cash position at the moment is, is what? So last, last update we've provided was end of September. Uh, so we were north of $50 million in cash, you know, $25, $25 million uh, of, of equity investment. Since then, we did trade out of part of that GoVX position. So cash will go up, equity investments will go down. And we had a large physical uranium position, obviously two and a half million pounds. So we, we were sitting with over $200 million Canadian in working capital and investments at the end of the third quarter. Okay, so um, I thought that was quite cute, actually going and buying pounds. One, that kind of got eyes on you, and, and two, obviously at those prices, why wouldn't you? Um, the, the, the arbitrage seemed eminently sensible and has pro- proved to be the case. Have you got, do you feel that you need to do more of that kind of, hey, what do I call it? Stru- structured economics to get noticed, or you think now that um, you've got to focus on on the business, and because um, you've got you you kind of got the institutional coverage now. I think that that you know that you were that they were you, you were seeking, uh, and obviously splits doing all sorts of wonderful things. But you, I think Mark is now looking for you to actually move these projects forward and justify the valuations, right? Yeah. No. Look. I, I look. We we are. Obviously, the, the record shows that we look at creative ideas. We are always monitoring our business, uh, and we've been a leader generally in, in terms of most things that have happened in, in the sector where there's been creativity, um, trying to create value for our shareholders. We will always do that. Right? That's, our, that's our responsibility. That's our job. All, all that said, we're really happy with where we're sitting right now, uh, and I don't see you know present need to do anything too inventive, uh, on the capital markets side, we're happy with the structure. We're happy with the ATM that we have, being able to use it selectively. We've got a solid balance balance sheet. We don't have a need to raise capital. We raise it as it makes sense. And so we're very comfortable with where that's at. You have to remember that $200 million, that funds us through feasibility, environmental assessment, and into like Initially, we raised enough to be about a third of our capex at Phoenix, but with the appreciation in the uranium, we're probably testing almost half of our capex at Phoenix. So, you know that that tells me that we we have a really stable situation, and and to your point, we now can focus on delivering the project, moving it through the feasibility and the environmental assessment, because the capital markets and balance sheet side is not the risk, not the risk it was. We go back two and a half years. So obviously we've seen Spurt kind of emulate you guys and do the, the, the New York listing. And 
that's that's played well for them to a point, and then I think that 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 shine has come off as people don't necessarily understand the, the, how the ATM works uh, for 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 the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. For you guys, you've you've kind of mirrored what's going on in the market. I, I think all all uranium companies have. Therefore, the market's doing a lot of the heavy lifting for you for you guys, and it's and if assets come off, you guys have come off um, too from from those highs. So, what's your expectation of the way that this plays out this year? You know, uranium uh, shareholders yeah. are famous for needing a catalyst moment. Spurt yeah, sure. came and went. Are they going to come back? What else do we need to see? Because it's still frothy out there. No, no, that, that's that's a that's a good question. Um, I think there's there's two things to that I want to highlight. So there's still great potential for for the Sprott uh, Physical Uranium Trust. The ATM has been highly successful. They've upsized it. Uh, they've shown that it's a highly efficient way of raising capital and 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 having the investors' interest affect the uranium market. What what's ahead for them is still the New York listing. So they have they've They've essentially initiated it, but to be able to successfully list uh, on the NYC ARCA, you know, with that product uh, and and provide just some like effortless access for for the the the, the giant base of U.S. investors uh, to that product, I, I cannot underscore how relevant I think that is and how relevant I thought that was when we were running UPC and when we put that provision. In the agreement, we think that is a tremendous potential catalyst. How long is it going to take? Um, because I, I'm not sure they know how long it'll take and how long SEC will take to respond. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're the they're the right people to ask about that now. Um, but but I, I would have an expectation that there's a possibility this does happen in 2022. Uh, the the second thing I want to flag for the market is you're sort of right, not, and sort of I'll challenge you on the equities being reflecting the uranium market. Um, you know, we, we, we've got a disconnect that has emerged over the last you know, two to three months. And let's use our physical uranium buying as an example. So we, we raised money, $1.10 US, to back that financing. We bought uranium under, under $30, $29.60, something in that range. So now recently, we've had some good days in the last few days, but recently we were testing similar share price levels. And yet the uranium price, which has gone up and down and, and been supported, no doubt, by, by Sprott and others, has persisted in the mid-40s. So that financing to buy uranium that made sense for us a year ago, the, the equation, the math, the, the arbitrage, whatever we want to call it, it's not there today. Right? So there is a disconnect from the market on the uranium side to the equities. And, and I've been telling people, I mean, various conferences, as I've been watching this happen, look, I think the uraniums are being caught up in broader market movements, had very successful performance for many people. People are taking risk off. But um, I think it's been a buying opportunity. And I do think that as the markets stabilize uh, and people set their expectations around inflation and all of these other disruptions that are affecting the market, that they will come back to the fact that the uranium space is actually not a speculative space. Uh, it, is, it is a space that's backed by fundamentals. We have supply demand fundamentals. We have pricing fundamentals. And when you see a uranium price that's persisted in the 40s, when you see record or recent record long-term contracting happening, these are things that tell me that the market is, is not speculative, it's, it's substantive. 
And then you see the equities have diverged from that. That, that to me, is a buying opportunity. I agree with you. I agree. I absolutely agree with you with regards to the fundamentals have not gone away, not one bit. My objection is the, the wild statements out there, the kind of desperate need for a greater fool theory to come into effect uh, by saying anything um, at all to attract bidders into this space is actually damaging because we, yeah. we, if you're looking from outside into the uranium investor space, we look like crazy people. And, yeah. you know, and that's off-putting. <laughs> I'm going to go somewhere else. So believe in the fundamentals, the supply demand story. Um, believe in, 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 in the amount of money that's being spent by China and, you know, extensions to, you know, life, life of, um, you know, well, all across Europe and, and in the U.S. for some of these reactors. The story's strong enough. We, we don't need to make stuff up. I guess that's where I'm, where I'm going. Like, it kind of saddens me to see the, those sorts of people yeah. being listened to, quite frankly. But look, David, I'm conscious of your time. You've given, you, I'm giving, I've got one minute to go. One, can you promise to come on and get a little bit technical on the exploration side of things? Cause I think that's the, the, the potential blue sky. However you choose to deal with that, keep it, you know, JV. Yeah. No, let, or, let, or sell let's, it. let's do that. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll, uh, let's touch more on technical. We can do a little bit of, uh, ISR. We'll always sneak that in and we'll do some uh, targeting and technical and and look i really appreciate the interest of everyone and and at the end of the day you're right um, the sector does not need to be excessively promotional it, it has a fundamental story there are good quality companies that have fundamental assets it is natural when these kind of markets do heat up that you have a variety of new entrants who come in a variety of stories and pitches and and you know i'll tell you like i'm i'm an industry insider uh, I do not envy the job of being an industry outsider trying to sift through the opportunities that are that are being presented because they're they're it's difficult uh, and so yeah I, I'm with you Matt like focus on the fundamentals focus on what really matters focus on the good quality and uh, yeah I'll talk to you soon thanks very much.